Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, you put your left wing in, you take your right wing out. How hokey-pokey hummingbirds sidle through tight spaces. They will turn sideways, put one wing in, then the body, and then the trailing wing, also adjusting the wing stroke amplitude of the trailing wing so that it fits through the aperture. And all male choirs unconsciously change their tune to impress girls in their audience. Of course they're singing together cooperatively, they're harmonizing together as a choir, they're cohesive, and yet the boys can potentially compete with one another. Plus, paleontologists find ancient whales in extra small and extra large, biologists compile a dictionary of fish sounds, and alien blobs invade the Earth's mantle. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Hummingbirds are awesome flyers, doing things no other birds can do. They dart through the air, hover, move up and down, sideways and backwards with remarkable agility. But there was an outstanding mystery about hummingbird flight. If you have a nectar feeder in your backyard, you've probably seen hummingbirds come out of nowhere through thickets of shrubbery or tree branches. How can they move so quickly and so precisely without crashing into things and injuring themselves? Well, a group of researchers investigated this by setting up an avian arena and some high-speed cameras to keep up with the hummingbirds. Mark Badger was part of the research team while working on his Ph.D. in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Badger, welcome to our program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, take me into the biomechanics of a hummingbird. How are they able to fly the way they do, including hovering, flying backwards and sideways? So hovering is um, incredibly, you have to be incredibly agile and be able to produce forces in any direction without really uh, turning or adjusting your body uh, orientation. And the way that hummingbirds do this is by flapping their wings really fast, essentially. They can produce lift on sort of both the downstroke and the upstroke, and they can change how much lift they generate by um, changing things like how quickly they're beating their wings, as well as how much they're beating their wings, the angle through which their wings are flapping. They also have incredibly articulate shoulders, and so they can angle their wings uh, wherever they want, pretty much. The wings, on the other hand, those are, are fairly rigid. So other birds can bend their wings at the wrist and kind of tuck their wings to their sides. Hummingbirds can't do that. They, they can, when they tuck their wings, they are rotating their wings, keeping them relatively straight uh, about their shoulder. Sort of like when I just hold my arms down to the side of my body. Exactly. As, as opposed to folding them behind my back, like, like a seagull does. Right. And so you can see how this might be uh, pretty interesting when we're at one, on the one hand, we're observing hummingbirds 
flying through extremely cluttered foliage. And yet, on the other hand, we know from previous studies that they can't bend their wings inwards uh, very much. Well, how did you study hummingbird flight in your new work? So what we did is uh, we developed an enclosure that uh, a flight arena, say, um, where we put the hummingbirds in and we were trying to motivate them to fly from one side of the arena to another side um, through a small opening. And when we were wondering about their interactions with vegetation and how they negotiated such tight, complex spaces, we started thinking of vegetation as a sequence of constrictions or apertures that the birds were flying through. Now, how small was the hole or your aperture compared to the uh, the wingspan of the hummingbird? So our apertures were um, from one wingspan in diameter down to half a wingspan in diameter. Uh, and we had different heights and widths as well. Wow, so that's pretty small for the bird to get through. What did you see? How were they navigating through this little hole? One technique that we observed, they tuck their wings all the way backwards and take a ballistic trajectory through the opening. We measured their acceleration as they're uh, fall, essentially falling through the opening, and they are falling like a rock. If you tossed a rock <laughs> through, it would, through the opening, it would take a similar trajectory. But this strategy is not what they use when we first saw them. And it's not what we, what really wowed us. Um, so the strategy that they use on average initially when they encounter the apertures in our experiments for the first time is they will, after checking out the aperture, looking around, flying around it a bunch, they will turn sideways, put one wing through while it's still flapping. They might reduce the wing stroke amplitude to fit in the aperture. They will turn sideways, put one wing in, then the body, and then the trailing wing, also adjusting the wing stroke amplitude of the trailing wing so that it fits through the aperture. Wow. When we saw this, our, our entire lab was totally wowed. We were just like, what is happening? How are they doing this? Why are they doing this? <laughs> so they're doing all of this while they're hovering. They're, they have to keep themselves in the air while they put one wing through the hole, then their body, then the other wing. Right. And they continue to produce aerodynamic force throughout this when they're doing the sideways scooch strategy, which um, makes basically makes it um, a more cautious strategy. They are not falling as fast when they come out of the aperture. It allows them to go more slowly through the aperture. And so we think that there's maybe less of a consequence if of a catastrophic mistake. If there's a cat on the other side or another obstacle or a sharp stick, um, if they are going, if they are taking this swept strategy through the aperture, that is committing. They are definitely going to the other side and they might need a, a fairly sizable region to recover from falling like a rock. And, um, but with this sideways swept strategy, they, um, it allows them to produce more force and move more slowly and kind of assess, presumably assess the situation as they are going through. Now, if they have these two different techniques for getting through the hole, one, a slow one where they go through sideways one wing at a time, and the other where they, they just fold their wings in or, or hold their wings in and go through like a bullet, which one did they do first? Early on in the experiments, they're primarily using the sideways uh, strategy. And then later in the, over the course of the experiment, the hundreds of trials that they each experienced in our experiments, they shift 
uh, to this swept ballistic strategy. These strategies might have different effects uh, in the long term. So, so we mentioned if there's something bad on the other side, maybe they use this, this sideways strategy first because it's a more cautious strategy. Why do they change? One of my hypotheses is that they are trying to avoid wing impacts. We showed that the number of wing impacts that they had was approximately the same uh, between the two strategies, but the intensity is much different. When they're doing this coasting strategy, they are um, kind of just sweeping their wings and their wings might brush on the aperture as they go through. When they are flapping, their wings are going 10 meters per second and any any impact with the aperture may, might repeatedly bend the wing. And whenever you repeatedly bend a material in the same location, you're creating uh, potentially microfractures and that can lead to a broken feather. Um, that'll get replaced um, when it molts, but until it does, it has to deal with those um, with those broken feathers. And um, so that might be one reason why they switch. Is there any lessons that we can take to uh, help us, well, for example, drone technology for machines that we want to hover and maneuver through tight spaces? Current remote control quadrotors can outperform most birds in open space across most metrics of performance. Um, so is there any reason to continue learning from nature? Uh, I think yes. And I think it's in how animals interact with these complex environments. One uh, thought experiment that I like to think about is what would happen if you put a bird's brain inside of a quadrotor. Would the cyborg bird or a normal bird be better at flying through a dense forest in the wind? There may be sensory and physical advantages to using flapping wings in turbulent or cluttered environments. Um, flapping wings might offer uh, a greater ability to kind of um, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, redirect aerodynamic forces, um, and they might offer additional aerodynamic feedback or better impact resistance, all of which can be beneficial when negotiating a spatially variable and complex environment. And so the ability to pick behaviorally among several obstacle negotiation strategies can allow animals to reliably squeeze through tight gaps and recover from mistakes. So maybe we'll have drones in the future that look like little hummingbirds. Maybe. <laughs> Dr. Badger, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Mark Badger is a research engineer who studied hummingbird flight while completing his Ph.D. at the University of California, Berkeley. don't typically think of fish as being great communicators. They're certainly not what comes to mind when you think about particularly chatty animals, but that could just be our bias as creatures who communicate with vibrating folds in our airways. Fish don't have vocal cords like us, but they do use their bodies in some interesting ways to communicate in grunts and growls, clicks and pops, hums and purrs, and occasionally even farts. And the more scientists learn about fish communication, the more we're starting to grasp how critical it is for fish to hear each other in our increasingly noisy oceans. I like to call fish sounds a quirky, fun introduction to a whole host of educational topics ranging from physics to ecology to conservation. That's Audrey Luby. 
A few years ago, she was fishing for a topic she could research for her PhD, and she was inspired to develop a more systematic understanding of fish sounds. For decades now, people working in the field of fish sound research and fish behavior, as well as just general underwater ecology, have been calling for this inventory of this important ecological and behavioral trait in fishes. And with this sort of tool, this inventory, we can do a lot more complex analyses than was previously possible. So she, along with her collaborators in Canada and Brazil, together created an online global repository with fish sounds made by more than a thousand fish species. Quirks and Quarks producer Sonia Biting spoke with Miss Luby about fishsounds.net. Here's her story. Hello, my name is Audrey Luby. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Florida, and I am one of the co-leads of the Fish Sounds project. A lot of focus has been placed on creating protections for marine mammals related to their sounds and exposure to harmful noises, but not as much has been focused on fish or invertebrates who may also use sounds for their behaviors and may require special types of management to protect their sounds in a similar way that you would do with marine mammals. And so sounds made by humans are increasing every year worldwide through activities such as shipping or industry, drilling, seismic surveys. All of that can create a lot of sound that can interfere with other sounds that animals need to function. And so with this website, we're hoping that it can also point to the fact of just how many fish species likely use sound for their behaviors and the importance of learning more about how noise could impact them and how we could manage any impacts that do occur. Sounds are integral to numerous aspects of fish life and behavior, depending on the species. And so sounds are used to coordinate crucial functions like reproduction, foraging, defense, all sorts of things. And other animals outside of fishes may also use fish sounds to find out information. For example, dolphins tend to preferentially eat fish species that are quite loud sound producers because they're able to take advantage of their sounds to find out where they're located. And some baby invertebrates, such as oysters or corals, may even listen to the sounds of their preferred habitat to figure out where they want to settle and grow up. So sounds are really, really important underwater and can convey a lot of information that couldn't be communicated through other means. Fish make so many different kinds of sounds. Unlike us mammals or birds, there isn't an ancestral trait of sound production in fishes. And so it's evolved sort of uniquely 
many times across the family of fishes. And so just as a couple of fun examples, some fish like seahorses will click bony structures together in their mouth while they're feeding around other seahorses as a form of competition. You'll also have many fish species make grunts or thumps or clicks when they're trying to scare other fish or animals out of their territory. Some fish will call, particularly males will call to females to let them know where they're located in order to coordinate reproduction efforts. And that's where you can see some of the loudest or most complex types of fish sounds that we've discovered to date where you could have hundreds of fish all forming in a big group and calling or singing in these really loud choruses. So in the Clupeid family, which includes shads, herrings, sardines, several fish species have been discovered expelling air out of their backsides as a form of communication, which yes, is essentially fish communicating with farts. We've already had several really exciting examples of how our website can be used. In the case of stingrays, they were only really definitively recorded making sounds in the wild last year. And the researchers who were able to video those stingrays were able to use our website and data set to confirm that this was in fact a new and novel and exciting discovery that they had made because they could search through all the stingray species records we had and see that they hadn't been found to make active sounds for communication in the wild previously. We've also had other examples where even ourselves, we've used the data set to look at and describe trends in the global distribution of species, certain areas that we know a lot about the sound production of species that are found there, and others where we don't. For example, I wasn't able to find any documented records of fish species making sounds for communication around Antarctica. And this could have just been because there hasn't been as much research effort down there. Or it could be that there is a true lack of active fish sound production in Antarctica that'll have to be followed up with future research. And then... As a final example, I've had plenty of friends, family members, strangers I've connected with online, classrooms I've talked to who are able to look through the website to learn more about fish species that they might interact with on a regular basis or to just learn more about sounds underwater. On another front, we primarily talk about and focus on active fish sounds, fish sounds that are used for some kind of communication or intentional purpose. But fish also produce sounds incidentally as they go about their regular activities. We call these passive sounds 
And while they're not necessarily produced intentionally, they can serve numerous signaling purposes. Lemon sharks, for example, have been shown to detect the sounds of wounded prey in order to find food or other things like that. But they have been so incredibly understudied in comparison to active sounds in the scientific literature. And so that would be another area where the field could really fill in a lot of gaps of exactly how those sounds could be useful, either for other animals or for us and any applications they could serve. So just as fish sounds are important to animals underwater trying to find out more information about their environment or communicate that information, we humans can also make use of these sounds for a variety of purposes. These can include locating where different fish species are for invasive species management, to know where they're spawning for fisheries management or to possibly even get to how many fish might be in a particular area. Some sounds can also be played on degraded habitats in order to help with restoration efforts. And on the business side of things, some aquaculture operations will even listen to the passive sounds of fish chewing. And so they know that when the fish stop chewing, then they don't need to put any more food into their tank to optimize food input. So there are a lot of uses that humans can have for how to apply these fish sounds to different things that we need as well. So I started this project as a pretty new, fresh, clueless grad student who hadn't really had much experience in bioacoustics or large data projects like this before. And to see it progress to what it is now, it's been a really, really exciting thing to see move forward. Audrey Luby is a Ph.D. candidate in fisheries and aquatic sciences at the University of Florida. For every animal that reproduces sexually, there comes a time for romance. For some, finding that perfect mate means showing off their vocal skills. Males craft the perfect love song to impress females sometimes joining together in a choir, hoping their collective serenade will attract more mates. Crickets do it, frogs do it, and it turns out that humans do it. But they also change their tune depending on who's listening. Peter Keller and his team studied the performances of a renowned German all-boy choir in front of different audiences. They found that when girls took up the front row seats, voices of the older boys in the choir sounded different, and the female listeners liked it better. Dr. Keller is a professor of neuroscience at the Center for Music in the Brain at Aarhus University in Denmark. Dr. Keller, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What inspired you to look into this? In fact, I was giving a lecture in the music department at Leipzig University in Germany, and I was working there at the time, and it was about the evolution of music. And at the end of the class, a student approached me and mentioned 
that he was formerly in a choir and mentioned that when there were girls prominently in the audience, something would happen with the boys' voices and it puzzled them. Nobody knew what was going on, including the conductor. And at that point, I found out that actually he was talking about the St. Thomas Boys' Choir of Leipzig, which was formerly conducted by Johann Sebastian Bach. So really, this is a, a high pedigree ensemble, very high standards. And at that point, the student said, maybe it is like what's going on in the other animals that, that, uh, that I was telling them about, which were, in fact, crickers and, and frogs. And I thought that was unlikely, but it started us thinking about what could really be going on. So how did you investigate it? I should maybe say by way of background that what happens with the crickets and frogs is that in these species, the males of the species congregate and they produce calls. Now, this behavior has come about for there are probably a couple of reasons why, but what it really boils down to is female preferences for energetic signals. And energetic signals can be the signals that are fast or intense, and energetic signals indicate a fit mate. Now, when the males signal together collectively, a phenomenon known as amplitude summation occurs. The sound waves add up and they carry further across the landscape and are more likely to attract females. So when the when the uh, animals, the frogs, get together, it's, it's like a choir harmonizing to produce uh, one big sound. It is. But the question is whether they are at some level intending to do that or whether it's a side effect or byproduct of something else. And it turns out that it most likely is a side effect of the fact that the females in these species prefer the energetic, fast signals. And what the males are actually doing are each individually signaling. Of course, it's in the best interest of each individual male to attract a mate to himself, not to the neighbor. Ah. So really what's, what's happened is a situation where it looks cooperative from the outside, at least from a human perspective, it looks like a choir <laughs> harmonizing together, but really what's going on is intense competition between the individuals. Now, the question was, of course, is this going to happen in humans? It seems unlikely, but it seems worth testing. Okay, so tell me about the setup then. How did you test this idea of choir competition among the boys' choir? we decided to ask the choir to perform a series of short concerts. And what we would do as investigators is manipulate the composition of the audience and more specifically, whether or not there are girls in the audience. And in the first concert, there were just males in the audience. In the second concert, we invited four girls who were aged 15 and 16 years old. That's in the middle range of the boys' ages in the choir, which was 12 to 19. And then in the third concert, the girls went away and there were just men in the audience again. Ah, so I, we have some recordings of uh, these different uh, choirs, just short little pieces here. Uh, here's one with no girls present. <laughs> And here's one with the girls present. Now, I didn't really hear a big difference there. <laughs> they sounded very similar to me. What, what did you hear? Yes. Well, it really depends what one's listening for. As I mentioned before, when talking about crickets and frogs, it's a matter of the speed of the signal, so the tempo. There is an alternative thing that one could listen for, and that is more the tone color of the voices. What we are doing is changing the shape of the vocal tract to create different resonances, okay? And these resonances highlight different frequencies in the vocal spectrum. 
So the voice has a whole range of sounds from low to high frequency sounds occurring simultaneously. The fundamental, the lowest frequency is what we hear as pitch usually in music, but there are frequencies occurring above this, which you can see in a spectrogram, and these change the spectral characteristics or the tone color or timbre of the voice. Well, what were the differences that you saw then in, in the sound of the boys' choir when the girls were present in the audience? What we found was that some boys increased frequency or spectral energy in a particular frequency region. This was from 2,500 to 3,500 hertz. Which, which boys did that? Well, the oldest boys with the deepest voices, the members of the bass section in the choir did this. So it could be the case that the basses, because they were shortly after puberty, or this is again speculation, were the more sexually mature boys. And for that reason, were maybe more motivated to produce this particular effect of enhancing the singer's format. So how does what you saw in the choirs and how the uh, the older boys responded to having girls in the audience compare to what we see in nature, uh, like in what is happening with frogs? The most interesting thing in terms of an analogy between what we see in the choir singing and in nature is that we have group cooperation working very effectively and nested within this is individual level competition. So in nature, you have crickets and frogs chorusing together. And in the human case, it's possibly a situation where of course they're singing together cooperatively, they're harmonizing together as a choir, they're cohesive, and yet by this subtle manipulation of energy in a high frequency region, the boys can potentially compete with one another. Well, would listeners hear a difference to the untrained ear? Would, would they notice that difference in the choir? We know from an online listening study that we did that they do, in fact, notice the difference. Female listeners, as a group, reliably preferred the performances sung with girls present, so the performances with the enhanced format, and males had no reliable preferences. So does that mean if a conductor wants his male choir to really step up their performance, uh, they should plant some girls in the first row? Not necessarily. It really depends what the aim of the performance is and what the style is. If the point is to blend the voices and not have individual voices sticking out, it's something that you do not want to do, actually. But in other cases, there may be situations where one does have a piece of music where you do want an individual voice or group of voices to stand out and it could be an additional way to, to do this, a performance technique that could actually be effective in this sort of context. Dr. Keller, thank you so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Dr. Peter Keller is a professor of neuroscience at the Center for Music in the Brain at Aarhus University in Denmark. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. Not long ago, the small but mighty community of whale paleontologists got a bit of a thrill. In a single week, two studies were released announcing the identification of a brand new species of bacillosaurids, 
whale ancestors from millions of years ago that were the first marine mammals known to science. And the new fossils represent an impressive early diversity in whale sizes, from tiny to the Titanic. The fossilized bones of the largest of these ancient giants were discovered in southern Peru over a decade ago, but it wasn't until this year that the truly astounding details about it were revealed. The 39-million-year-old fossil turned out to belong to an early whale that was thought to be 20 meters long, similar to today's blue whale, but it might have weighed an astonishing 300 tons, twice as heavy as any other animal that has ever roamed our planet. Paleontologist Ellie Omson described this ancient giant. He's a curator of fossil mammals at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. Dr. Omson, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me. How were these whale fossils discovered? The story of the discovery is, uh, is pretty amazing, actually. It's uh, the, um, one of the co-authors of the study, Mario Urbina, who um, discovered the fossil. He's a Peruvian paleontologist and he's been hunting for fossils in the Peruvian desert. It's uh, quite a long time ago, over 10 years ago, that he realized there was something uh, weird in the desert. At first, actually, he had to convince the, the colleagues that this was actually um, a fossil. And in that particular case, the, the fossils were so weird, it was not even clear if those were remains of, of ancient animals. Well, well, what was strange about these these fossil bones? Like, how big were they? How large they were and how weird their shape was, was part of the, the reason why it was not recognized as a fossil initially. But also simply the structure of the bones themselves. Usually, even though we're talking about bones that are several million years old, you still recognize the porous bone that when, when you have, when you look inside bones, they usually, have, there's a lot of pores and there's a lot of cavities. And in this case, it really looked like a piece of marble. It was so dense. We now know, uh, understand, let's say, that this is actually part of the whole uh, story. This character, extremely compact of the bones, it's, it's one of the adaptations of these marine mammals that is called osteosclerosis. So they basically add more bone uh, mass to their skeletal mass by filling all these inner cavities with solid bone. Wow. So I guess they were so dense that they just looked like rocks. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't look like bones. So how big were they? So we now recovered 13 vertebrae and four ribs. And the vertebrae, once they are completely prepared and all the sediment is removed, they are something like 80 centimeters of, of diameter. So really huge. Wow, vertebrae. So those are part of the backbone of this animal. Exactly. So when you put these uh, vertebrae and ribs together, uh, what do you think the animal actually looked like when it was alive? It was definitely a weird thing uh, for different reasons. First, it belongs, as you mentioned, to this family, the Basilosauridae. This family is completely extinct, this family of early whales, and had a completely different body plan from the really large whales we know today. So the large whales we know today, like the Berlin whales, like the blue whale, or the sperm whales, they have a huge head. Uh, it's roughly 30% uh, of the body length is, is made out of head. These early uh, whales, these Basiozoids, they were much more serpentine, you know, snake-like in the body organization. They had, all of them, they had a tiny, tiny head. So we have to picture this major difference, even though in this particular case, we did not find any part of the, the head, sadly. 
we are pretty confident it was uh, small when compared to the rest of the body because basically this part of the anatomy of Basiosauridae is quite preserved across all members of this family. But it's also weird for Basiosauridae because it acquired not only these really dense bones that I mentioned before, but also this uh, additional deposition of bone outside of the each of the, the skeletal element, which gives the really bloated appearance to all the vertebrae and, and ribs we found. So this was an animal with an enormous amount of additional bone. The skeleton was way heavier than that of a blue whale, at least twice as heavy. And if you are a marine mammal, you cannot be too dense or you would just sink at the bottom of the water. So these huge amounts of bone tissues had to be compensated for by equally gigantic amounts of uh, soft tissues. This animal was most likely pretty chubby. So where then in the ocean would a whale of that size live? Make the difference between this early whale and the large whales like the blue whale. The very large, the gigantic uh, whales today, they are uh, pelagic, meaning that they, they live in the open sea and uh, can dive at a fairly great depth. While this animal, with this uh, specific type of uh, adaptation that I refer to, this bone mass increase, was a coastal animal. So a completely different environment, not diving at a great depth, and uh, yeah, most likely sustaining um, its gigantic body mass with uh, the coastal uh, fauna that, uh, that was present there. We have very few associated fossils, so we have basically no idea of the associated fauna. But uh, what we know, what actually was known before already, before our studies, is that at that time in, in, in the Eocene, uh, the um, coastal environment was much, much richer than today. The productivity was much greater. The productivity collapsed at the end of the Eocene, and that's basically when this family got extinct. Well, how does this uh, giant whale from 40 or 50 million years ago help us understand the evolution of whales better? So far, we only could picture the tremendous gigantism seen in the blue whale, for instance, with a recent event. So when I say recent now, it's uh, less than 10 million years old. The recent event being uh, the cooling of waters that actually, in this case, increased the productivity of the open sea environment. Back then, it was completely different. The coastal environment was much richer. And this is the basically the, the main take-home message of our uh, discoveries, that this environment was so different from, from today and so rich that it could sustain an animal as gigantic as a blue whale or even maybe beyond that. So basically another evolutionary way to gigantism in cetaceans that we had no clue before. Well, do you think that this whale is as big as whales ever got? Or do you think there might have been something even larger? It's a good question. You can, you should never say never in paleontology, right? <laughs> maybe, who knows, maybe they're going to find a nictiosaur from the Triassic, like those marine reptiles that got even bigger, who knows? But I think in, in cetaceans, we already got pretty big with this animal. Dr. Romson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Ellie Omson is a curator of fossil mammals at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. Now, I mentioned there were two recent announcements of ancient whale discoveries. In the same week as the world got to know about this giant whale, a paleontologist working across the world in Egypt was sharing a different discovery. 
one that was much smaller in size, but still big news in the whale science community. My name is Hisham Salam. I'm a professor at uh, American University in Cairo. So we got the fossils uh, in 2017 to put it in um, the uh, scanning machine, the, uh, the CAT scan. Um, we thought it might be some kind of amphibious lifestyle whale, uh, given the age in 41 million years ago, but it seems um, something else. So we um, kept looking at the X-ray to find out it's actually belonged to the Bacillosaurid whale to be the oldest record from Fayum and also from Africa. And also we kept uh, studying it and investigating every single bone and every single tooth that we actually looking at something very special. Uh, so it's actually a new genus and species of um, Bacillosaurid whale. And it's not only uh, that, but also it's actually still growing. So we can say it's a sub-adult whale. And we gave it a name, Tutsitas. In our study, we found that Tutsitas is not that big. And, and we believe it's actually the smallest known up-to-date uh, Bacillosaurid whale. Tutsitas looks like a dolphin living today. They can swim freely in, and also go deeper in uh, chasing the uh, their prayers and also um, diving into deep areas uh, looking for food. Tatsitas was the oldest record from Africa uh, for the fully aquatic whale. And this is really important because in the same area, in the older deposits, we found protestes, which is actually four-legged whale, uh, amphibious lifestyle in living at that time, and all the signs you find the first record of fully aquatic whale in the same area, which is actually inspire us to go back again and look for more links to see the mosaic feature between amphibious lifestyle whale and a fully aquatic whale. In one week, uh, the world welcomed the smallest and the heaviest whale ever exist. And this is, was amazing to see how this group went everywhere and become in different uh, aspects. Uh, like it's, it's really amazing journey. If you looking at the whale history, it's one of the marvelous journey in life history. Kesham Salam is a professor at the American University in Cairo and the founder of Mansoura University's Vertebrate Paleontology Center. Deep in the middle of our planet is a hot metal core. Above that is the mantle, a thick region sandwiched between the core and the outer layer, the Earth's cooler solid crust. And geophysicists have known for some time that the mantle is not uniform. It includes two massive continent-sized blobs, one under Africa, the other under the Pacific, made up of materials significantly different from the rest of the mantle. Where these blobs came from has been a mystery for Earth scientists for decades. But in 2019, geophysicist Qian Yuan had a eureka moment. 
He was at a seminar discussing the giant impact 4.5 billion years ago that scientists believe formed the moon. The idea is that a protoplanet called Thea, about the size of Mars, smashed into the early Earth. And the moon was created from the debris. Dr. Yuan was inspired to ask if this earth-shattering impact could also explain the Earth's mantle blobs. And he and his colleagues have now published the answer to that question in a paper in the journal Nature. Dr. Yuan is a postdoctoral scholar in geophysics at Caltech University in Pasadena, California. Hello and welcome to our program. Hello. Yeah, nice to meet you, Bob. First of all, what was it that you heard at that seminar about the collision that formed our moon that inspired your research? So I have a broad interest in planetary science. So I listened to the seminar. Uh, the professor, he's giving the explanation on the moon's formation. And uh, it's well accepted the moon was, was likely formed by this giant impact. But there is one missing part, very, very crucial. Where is the impact now? Nobody found any piece of evidence to support the existence of this hypothetical impactor. So no similar meteorite or asteroid have been found that have a similar isotope to Earth or Moon. So what did you suspect back then might have happened to explain how these blobs got there inside the Earth? Yes, right after his question, I have this idea. Well, it should end up in the Earth. It may left <laughs> something as we can see it as using seismic images. That's how we image the interior of the whole Earth. We found these two massive blobs. I know they are planetary size. Ah, so in, in other words, some of it was absorbed into the Earth and some of it went out into space and became the moon. Yes, the debris outside it formed the moon, but the majority of the impactor actually went into Earth, but it didn't mix. Now, tell me about these blobs. I mean, how big are they? Yeah, each of the blobs is at least larger than the size of the whole moon. Wow. They are massive. Let's uh, take me through the evidence then. How did you explore what these blobs are made of? The most clear signal we observe this blob are from seismic waves. Because when seismic waves travel down deep to Earth, when they enter this region, the seismic wave slow down very obviously, about a few percent lower than the rest of the mantle. So to explain this slow seismic velocity, it will require a higher temperature and also in order to stable there for longer time because there is geological evidence suggests this blob has been at least older than 200 million years. So it also requires it to be denser than the Earth's regular mantle. So it's denser, so what would that be made of? It'd be made of a little bit higher iron content compared to other mantle rocks, yeah. Okay. So what was your next clue that these could be left over from the uh, body that impacted us? The strongest evidence we found in our paper is that we have done with our collaborators, they are all astrophysicists. They have performing this state-of-art, high-resolution, moon-forming giant impact simulations. Their simulations show this giant impact didn't melt the whole Earth. It only melted the upper half of Earth's mantle. So that left the Earth's lower half mantle mostly solid. And that solid lower layer can directly capture 15% of the impactor's mantle. And this impactor mantle later sink down and survive Earth's history and form these mantle blobs. Mm. So if the blobs within the Earth are rich in iron, how does that compare to the moon? Good questions. 
we think Thea's mantle is likely to be iron rich. Why? It has been found moon has higher iron than Earth's mantle. So if the moon was formed by a mixture of this impactor and also Earth, so why moon should have higher iron? So best ex explanation is that impactor's mantle is more iron rich than the moon. So that extra iron content of the impactor's mantle will give the extra density of the Theas blob that will allow it to survive in the Earth for billions of years. Wow. Now, how did you know that these blobs are older than 200 million years? We have geological records. It has been found that the edges of two blobs, if you project the boundary to the surface, you will see most of the super volcanoes and also hotspots like Einstein and Hawaii, this kind of all erupted around the boundaries of these two blobs. So that suggests these two blobs may control the eruption size of these super volcanoes at least 200 million years. So are you saying that these blobs, the remnant of Thea, yeah. are acting like a reservoir for the super volcanoes we see on the surface? Yes, yeah, they are kind of reservoir, and the plume brings some signature from this reservoir to the surface, and that signature has been measured by geochemists. Why? Well, we're hearing a lot about uh, an impending eruption in Iceland right now. So when, when volcanoes erupt there, are we actually seeing samples of Thea coming out of the ground? It's very possible. From seismic image, we can see there is a plume beneath Iceland. Yeah, wow. It's very likely. That's amazing. So why would it form two blobs and not just a nice uniform layer of that material all the way around the Earth? Yes, nice question. Quickly after this collision, in the first like tens of million years, it may form a layer above the core. But later on, Earth, Earth is the only planet that has plate tectonics, and then there is a subduction. Subduction slab is a very strong slab. It will start to mix the mantle, and it's very strong. So it will interact with these layers. So it will separate these layers into different blobs. And we can see in our model in Earth's 4.5 billion years, sometimes that layer separate into three, sometimes it separate into two, sometimes merge into one. But after 4.5 billion years, it ends up as two blobs. This is consistent with our observation of the Earth. Dr. Yuan, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Bob, and my pleasure. Dr. Chen Yuan is a postdoctoral scholar in geophysics at the California Institute of Technology. And now it's time for our Quirks and Quarks question. Hello, I'm George Asaf from Vancouver. I've been interested in the engineering of trees. In particular, why are some trees stiff with dense wood, and why are some more supple with softer wood? Where I grew up, we had willows in the same area as cedars, firs, oaks, maples, and arbutus. As they were all subject to the same environmental conditions, do these differences provide similar defenses to the same stressors? Thanks. And here's the answer. My name is Yasin Motiar, and I'm currently a university researcher here at the University of Helsinki in Finland. To understand why some trees are more or less flexible than others, we need to zoom in and look at the structure of wood. So primarily wood is made up of these tall, rather narrow cells that are responsible for both strength and for conducting water throughout the tree. 
and these cells are surrounded by thick shells called cell walls. In mature wood, the cells themselves are actually mostly dead, so the function in terms of strength and water conduction is actually provided by the cell walls, which are left behind when cells die. The stiffness or flexibility of wood is determined by the physical and chemical properties of these cell walls. So, for example, if the cell walls are thicker or more dense, this could result in wood that is stronger but less flexible. But the chemical makeup of the cell wall also impacts mechanical properties. For example, wood cell walls contain a phenolic polymer called lignin, which drastically increases the hardness of the cell wall and also helps adjacent cells to stick together. Uh, cellulose is another important component that can also contribute to cell wall strength. So these are some of the major factors that contribute to wood flexibility. All of these parameters vary widely between different species, and all can be changed in response to stress. But there's always a trade-off. Wood needs to be strong and somewhat flexible at the same time. If it's too stiff, it could easily break. The other thing to keep in mind is that strength isn't the only function of wood. Trees also rely on wood to conduct water from the roots all the way up to the shoots. Wood also plays a role in defense against pathogens, and many of the parameters that affect strength can also impact those other functions as well. So, for example, if you have a tree with less lignin, it might be more flexible but also less resilient to drought and pathogens. One interesting example is a species that I've been studying, which is called leatherwood. So it's a shrub that's found in forests across eastern North America, and it's well known for having flexible woody stems. And as it turns out, leatherwood has low levels of lignin, one of those cell wall components I mentioned. But to avoid problems with water transport, the cells that are responsible for water conduction still have lots of lignin. So in this way, the wood ends up being quite flexible, but still effective in conducting water. But the trade-off for leatherwood comes in terms of defense. Leatherwood has to produce all kinds of chemicals in the wood to help defend against pests and pathogens in case the wood is attacked or wounded. So just to summarize, there isn't one set of cell wall properties or wood properties that's best adapted to all stressors. It really depends on the specific environmental conditions. And you can imagine that different tree species have evolved different cell walls because they had different evolutionary pressures in their respective habitats. Well, I hope that helps answer your question, or at least provoke some new questions for you. Dr. Yasin Mochiar is currently a researcher at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Early in the new year, he will take up a position as an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Ottawa. And just a reminder, if you have a science question you'd like answered, we're getting ready for a special holiday question show for the end of the year, and we need your questions. So put on your query cap and send them along. We'll tell you how in just a second. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.